One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Woodridge, New York, is a quaint little village about 80 miles northwest of Manhattan. On the night of December 8, 2018, the small community was quiet, dotted with holiday decorations and lights. Everyone was tucked in for the night. But at three that morning, two children were not cozy in their beds. They were standing outside their home in the bitter cold. The young girl gripped her little brother's hand. In her other palm, she held a burner phone up to her ear. She looked around for the person on the other end of the line. Her eyes finally landed on a car idling in the darkness at the end of the street. As the brother and sister approached, they were greeted by familiar faces who easily coaxed them into the vehicle. Then, while their mother and siblings slept inside the house behind them, they vanished without a trace. But who was responsible for their disappearance? Blackmailers? Predators? Human traffickers? The answer was far stranger than any of those explanations, for the children were now in the clutches of the ultra-Orthodox cult, Lev Tahor. I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a podcast original. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Cults for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Last week, we explored the origins of Lev Tahor, an ultra-Orthodox Jewish community led by the captivating Rabbi Shlomo Helbrons. This week, we'll examine the crimes that Lev Tahor has been accused of, 
including multiple kidnappings and alleged child abuse, as well as where the cult stands today. Shauna Fima first took her 13-year-old son, Shai, to Lev Tahor in Brooklyn in February of 1992, looking for someone to prepare him for his bar mitzvah. The rabbi, 29-year-old Shlomo Helbrons, was in the middle of giving a lesson, but he stopped speaking as soon as Shai walked into the room. Shauna recalled, he said he saw a light on Shai's face, the rabbi asked him if he does everything with his whole heart. Helbrons told Shauna that he didn't usually perform bar mitzvahs and that his yeshiva, or religious school, wasn't intended for boys as young as Shai. But Helbrons claimed that Shai was so insistent that he accepted him as a student. Once his education began, Shai confided in Helbrons and other members of Lev Tahor that Shauna and his stepfather, Jackie, beat him. In addition, his parents forbade him from having any contact with his biological father, Michael, who still lived back in Israel. Shai's claims of abuse were investigated by a social worker, but the inquiry failed to turn up sufficient evidence. In addition, Shauna and Jackie denied all the allegations. Jackie eventually met Helbrons at Shai's bar mitzvah, but he didn't take to the rabbi. His nine-year-old son, Oshri, didn't feel comfortable around Helbrons either. Oshri was approached by another young man in love to horror, who asked if he could read Hebrew. Oshri relayed, I said no. Then he tells me, if you don't learn how to read Hebrew now, you'll go to hell when you grow up. Following the bar mitzvah ceremony, Shauna was approached by one of Helbron's sons. The boy thanked her for giving Shai to their family and remarked that he was very fond of his newly added big brother. The following week, Shauna decided it was time for Shai to leave the yeshiva and return to public school. But she was met with resistance from Helbrons. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. According to author and psychiatrist Dr. Abigail Brenner, manipulative people draw others in with acceptance and kindness, then reveal their true intentions after they've already trapped their victims in a relationship. Helbrons displayed this pattern of behavior by praising Shai and his mother at the outset, then exerting control over the family once he had the child under his tutelage. When Shana finally did leave with her son, one of Lev Tahor's members, Mordecai Weiss, called after. Shai, remember, your father loves you. Your father's waiting for you. You know the way to the yeshiva, so run away and come back. Once home, Shai asked Shauna to cut off his payots, or side curls, which he had grown after becoming a pupil of Helbron's. After, Shai fearfully asked Shauna, Mommy, if Mordecai asks you who cut my payots, don't say that I let you cut it. Say that in the night when I sleep, you came and cut my payots. 
According to Shauna, Mordecai called incessantly, as many as 20 times in one day, asking for Shai to come study with him. Finally, she agreed on April 4, 1992. When she dropped Shai off at the temple, Mordecai told Shauna, don't worry, I'll be responsible for him. I'll be all the time with him. But when Shauna and Jackie came to retrieve Shai the next night, Shai wasn't at the Borough Park Temple. When they went to confront Shlomo Helbrons, he wasn't home. Jackie spoke to his wife instead. She told him, you can forget about Shai. The rabbi just took him. You're not going to see him forever. Shauna reported her son missing to the police. Four days later, on April 9th, Helbrons was arrested, but the district attorney dropped the charges mere hours later, citing a lack of evidence. He was running for state's attorney at the time and counted Hasidic Jews among his voters, so it was suspected that he released Helbrons for his own political agenda. Meanwhile, Helbrons claimed to know nothing of Shai's whereabouts. Perhaps the boy simply ran away from home? Helbrons told New York Magazine that he was shocked by the allegations against him and maintained that his only objective with Shai was to bring the boy closer to Judaism, not to steal him away from his family. But this was undoubtedly a lie. Shauna knew that Lev Tahor was responsible for her son's disappearance, and she'd make sure the world knew so, too. She went to the press. Shauna was contacted by other parents who shared in her grief. Their children had also left home to live and study with Helbrons, both when he still resided in Jerusalem and after he had relocated to New York. However, they were mostly in their late teens and early 20s when they left, so from a legal standpoint, there was nothing to be done. They didn't need their parents' permission. Shai's biological father, Michael, read about his estranged son's disappearance through a newspaper article. He immediately contacted Helbrons, who flew Michael to New York under the pretense of visiting Shai. This meant the rabbi knew where the boy was. During their initial meeting, Helbrons claimed that Shauna and Jackie were both addicted to drugs and repeatedly beat their children. Helbrons said that he wanted to save Shai from the abuse. He told Michael he had agreed to pay Shauna between fifty dollars and $100,000 for shared custody of Shai. He wasn't missing. Shauna was just trying to get more money. Bewildered by the news, Michael went to Shauna and Jackie's home to confront them. That's when Shai's trio of parents realized that the rabbi had been playing them all against each other, and they were no closer to finding their son. In June of 1992, two months after Shai disappeared, federal investigators joined the case. But they continued to hit roadblocks, their investigation was completely stonewalled by those in Lev Tahor. Detective Sergeant Joseph Perino said of the closed-off community, if you're not part of them, forget it. Eventually, they were forced to resort to phone taps, surveillance vehicles, and security cameras to collect any kind of substantial evidence. Eventually, Helbrons was again arrested for kidnapping. 
The prosecution claimed that Helbrons and his followers gave Shauna letters from Shai, trying to discourage her from searching for her son. Shai wrote that he would only return home if Shauna committed to becoming more religious as well. It was clear evidence that Helbrons knew where the 13-year-old was hiding and was deliberately keeping him from his mother. Captain William Plackenmeyer of the New York Police Department said, The family's not perfect, but as an excuse for kidnapping, there is none. Period. Helbron's wife, Malka, was arrested along with her husband. She was suspected of attempting to keep Shauna away from Shai. The Helbrons were taken into custody on Shabbat Eve. Their arrest was met with protests from hundreds of people both followers of Leb Tahor and members of the local Satmar Hasidim sect. Part of the outrage stemmed from the fact that Malka had been separated from her and Helbron's infant son. But many outright refused to believe that the rabbi could be guilty of kidnapping. Of Helbron's, Rabbi Bernard Freilich said, his organization takes people who have nobody, don't have parents, don't have anything, lost people almost, People who are Jewish and were not Orthodox, he takes them into his house, he gives them food and shelter, and also Judaism. The Central Rabbinical Congress, an organization in Brooklyn, raised a staggering $250,000 to bail Helbrons and his wife out of jail. Though the charges against Malka were eventually dropped, the rabbi was brought to trial in January of 1994. If convicted, Helbrons faced up to 25 years in prison. Then, eight days into the kidnapping trial, Shai miraculously resurfaced. Coming up, what Shai's reappearance meant for the trial and the future of Lev Tahor. Now, back to the story. In January of 1994, 31-year-old Shlomo Helbrons was brought to trial for the kidnapping of 13-year-old Shai Fima Reuven. But just over a week into the proceedings, after being missing for almost two years, Shai resurfaced. He was escorted to a sheriff's office in Rockland County, New York, by Rabbi Arieh Zox who had been watching the boy for the past few weeks. According to Zox, Shai would not tell him where he had been for the past two years. The boy only said that he had run away from home of his own volition, and it had nothing to do with Lev Tahor. If he were to divulge any additional information, Shai said, it would hurt the people and the families who helped me. After hours of questioning, Shai still wouldn't budge and his allegiance to Helbrons was unwavering. He said, I told Rabbi Helbrons about the abuse I experienced at home and that I just ran away. I never wanted to go and learn in his yeshiva. I went somewhere else. But Shai's father, Michael Reuven, vehemently disagreed. He said, I don't care what Shai or Helbrons say. As far as I'm concerned, he is responsible for the kidnapping. Throughout these two years, he knew where the boy was. He tricked all the investigators, but that won't help him any 
because I know the truth. When Shai was called as a witness in Helbron's trial, he testified that his mother Shana had physically abused him and that Lev Tahor was a much-needed sanctuary. Shai said, I never had a chance to know what a normal family was until I came to Rabbi Helbron's. Once you see a normal life, it's hard to go to an unnormal life. Even with Shai's testimony, Helbron's was found guilty and sentenced to between 6 and 12 years in prison. Despite the verdict, Shai's father Michael was still incensed. He said, Helbron's burned two years of my life. After I got divorced from Shai's mother, I started a new family. Because of the struggle over Shai, I neglected my business and my family. In the end, I sold my house and later I got divorced too. While on Rikers Island, Helbrons received special treatment because of his staunch commitment to his religion. He was permitted to wear white shirts, even though that was the apparel of the prison guards. He was also excused from shaving his beard and having his photograph taken for the prisoner's album. Instead, for the first time ever, a computer-generated portrait was used. However, Helbrons insisted that he wasn't granted an easier stay. He said, I might have been the first Haredi rabbi in this place. The system was dealing with someone it wasn't familiar with, but I didn't get any breaks. I paid a heavy price for something I wasn't involved in. My family also paid a heavy price. In 1996, after serving two years of his sentence, 33-year-old Helbrons was released on parole. He immediately returned to Lev Tahor to continue life with his followers. Even after all of this, he denied being involved in Shai's disappearance. Helbrons said, If Shai Fima would have come to me when he ran away, I don't think I would have refrained from helping him, but I would have done it differently. Besides, I have nothing to say about the kidnapping. I have no connection to it. Four years later, in 2000, Helbron's visa was revoked over the felony conviction. He tried several times to appeal and avoid deportation back to Israel, but was unsuccessful. Determined to evade what he condemned as the evil state of Israel, Helbron's fled to Canada. He was able to create a new home base there on a visitor's visa. When that visa expired in 2003, 40-year-old Helbron sought asylum, claiming to be a refugee. His anti-Zionist stance would incite persecution in his homeland. He was required to appear before a board and convince them that he could not return to Israel. As part of his claim, Helbron submitted a video. On the recording, now 24-year-old Shai Fima Reuven maintained his support of the rabbi and assured naysayers that he had never been abducted by his mentor. Shai said, I feel really bad for what happened to the rabbi. He was prosecuted just because he introduced me to the religion, nothing else. Not because he kidnapped me. This is why I'm here today, because I want to clear his name. It worked. Helbrons was granted refugee status and settled in Saint-Agaté-de-Mont, a quaint town about two hours north of Montreal. 
His followers in Lev Tahor joined him there. The women of Lev Tahor were hard to miss in Sanagate. Their long black robes were a stark contrast to the pure white snow that often enveloped the town. Because the children of the sect were educated at home by other members, they were rarely seen out in public and certainly not in a school setting. The adults never roamed far from their community either. The men didn't hold down traditional jobs, and the women had food delivered directly to their doors. Shulamit Kaminsky allegedly spent a few months in Lev Tahor before deciding it was not the right fit for her, as the members seemed unhappy. She's reported to have said, They all pop pills, all kind of pills. The rabbi orders them to take those pills. While the cult managed to avoid any scandal for several years, they caught renewed attention in 2011 when two sisters aged 13 and 15 were taken by Canadian immigration and returned to Israel. The girl's great uncle was concerned that his nieces would be forced into marriages. Helbrons explained to the local newspaper that he merely suggested husbands. He said, the women here choose of their own will. Later that year, Quebec authorities learned that the children of Lev Tahor were not receiving a complete education. Many of them could not speak either English or French, which are Quebec's official languages. This prompted child welfare and educational officials to visit the community's residents in May of 2012. It was reportedly ramshackle and frigid, filthy and infested with bugs. One of the girls in the community told welfare workers that she was going to be married off to a much older man. She was removed from Lev Tahor by authorities and sent to live with an aunt in the United States. More of these stories started to emerge. Seven months later, a pregnant 17-year-old member allegedly told some local hospital staffers that she was forced into marriage when she was only 15 and her new husband was already 30. She also told them that she'd been physically assaulted by her brother and sexually abused by her father. But there were also men who spoke out against the cult, like Adam Bruzhevsky, who spent two years in Lev Tahor. Bruzhevsky accused the cult's leaders of locking non-compliant girls in basements and drugging members to wield control over them. Later, in sworn testimony, he said, I started having more and more questions about the righteousness of what was going on. Bruzhevsky asserted that Helbrons encouraged everybody to spy on each other, both children and their parents and friends. One of Bruzhevsky's jobs was to work in the yeshiva with the male children. He said, whenever a boy would not do as he's supposed to, I was supposed to hit him with a wire hanger. I later discovered that hitting was a regular punishment in the community. When Bruzhevsky and his wife started thinking about leaving Lev Tahor, he was reportedly instructed to divorce her. Additionally, he was forced to sign an oath that stated he suffered from a serious mental illness. He said, I had to subject myself to treatment for what they call borderline personality disorder. According to Brzezewski, this was not uncommon in Lev Tahor. Not only were the diagnoses declared by Helbrons himself, 
but patients were also subjected to treatments of the rabbi's own design. These included multivitamins, the Atkins diet, and antipsychotic drugs. Brzezewski and his wife ultimately fled, and when they did, they went straight to the police. He said, I'm obligated to help these children that are in trouble. The conditions that the people are living under in the community are damaging to them. Oded Tweek also publicly condemned Lebtahor, though he was never a member of the cult himself. Rather, his sister, Sima, joined the sect when she was barely a teenager. Two years after moving to New York, Sima was engaged to a man nearly 10 years older than her, which came as a surprise to her brother. Following their wedding, she and her husband had several children in rapid succession. Sima remained a devoted member of Lev Tahor for more than a decade before Tweek began to worry for her children, his eight nieces and nephews. In 2011, when he traveled to Quebec to visit his sister and her family, he grew uneasy. He said, I kind of felt that something was not right with her situation. First of all, after one of Sima's sons died, she refused to ever visit his grave. This, she insisted, would have been going against Helbron's direct orders. Furthermore, Sima lost custody of her children for three full years when they were allegedly taken from her and placed with other families within Lev Tahor. According to Tweek, this type of punishment, known as internal abandonment, was common in the sect. This could be considered a form of totalism, a classic cult tactic that includes making members feel isolated, even from their own families. Tweek certainly felt this way, saying, Lev Tahor is a cult, 100% a cult, very cruel and most destructive cult. Another former member, Mendy Marcus, attended the yeshiva at Lev Tahor in the early 2000s when he was 11 years old. He said, the way they make you listen is by slapping you or by pinching you. Some extreme religious people will call that discipline, but it's not discipline. It's physical abuse. Marcus was critical of Helbrons and believed that the methods the rabbi used could be considered brainwashing. He said, he told me a lot, I'm special, I'm holy, I'm smart and all that. But he uses those lines for everyone to get them to listen. Marcus added, Helbrons couldn't care less about any of the God stuff. It's a tool for him to get people to follow him. Once they follow him, the God part falls away, and he has pure mind control over the people. According to FBI agent Joe Navarro of the Behavioral Analysis Program, former followers' descriptions of Helbron's practices are similar to those of other cult leaders. Navarro says that typical traits of a cult leader include demanding blind and unquestioned obedience, publicly humiliating followers, and habitually treating others as though they are inferior. Some Canadian government services seem to agree that Lev Tahor was a predatory organization. Quebec's Youth Protection Services became concerned that the children of Lev Tahor were being abused and neglected. In addition to unconventional education and forced marriages, the YPS accused Helbron's followers of medicating the children with the hormone melatonin 
in an attempt to control their behavior. In August of 2013, the Lev Tahor community in Sant Agate was raided by authorities looking for answers. Based on their findings, social services removed five children from the sect. An additional 14 were deemed in need of assistance, and their parents were summoned to court, but they never made an appearance. Instead, in the middle of a cold night in November of 2013, Lev Tahor suddenly vanished. Coming up, Helbrandt's cult unwittingly becomes a community of fugitives. Now back to the story. In November of 2013, 51-year-old Shlomo Helbrons and his ultra-Orthodox Jewish sect known as Lev Tahor fled Canada. They were concerned that authorities would remove several of the group's children from their compound. The community fled in such a hurry, they left a coffee pot on. They moved almost 600 miles away to Chatham-Kent in Ontario, near the U.S.-Canada border. What appealed to them about this rural area was its isolation. They also felt protected from the welfare authorities back in San Agate. But a few months later, in February of 2014, a judge with Chatham-Kent jurisdiction ruled that the 14 children should be removed from Lev Tahor. In response, they fled yet again. While half of the children were eventually found and placed into foster care, the other half traveled with the rest of the sect to Guatemala. During the summer of 2014, the members of Lev Tahor gradually emigrated to the Central American country. Guatemala was home to a growing Orthodox community who could offer them support. At the time of the group's relocation, the legal age of marriage in Guatemala was only 14 years old. Stephen Doig, the executive director of Chatham-Kent Children's Services, said, it'd be fair to say they didn't go to Guatemala by accident. Marcy Hamilton, a law professor at Yeshiva University and an expert on Lev Tahor, said, the level of crime, the level of poverty, and the level of corruption make it less likely that the government is going to focus on a small group like Lev Tahor, even if it is engaging in serial child abuse. That same year, now 35-year-old Shai Fima Reuven was interviewed by the Canadian Broadcasting Company about his experience with Lev Tahor. He admitted that the community paid him $5,000 to appear in the earlier video with Hellbronze and support his innocence. According to Shai, Hellbronze did indeed kidnap him. Lev Tahor originally took up residence in San Juan, La Laguna, but were investigated by local authorities at the behest of Israeli and Canadian child welfare agencies. While the government eventually granted Lev Tahor permission to remain there, the probe left Helbrons distressed, and he decided to start fresh in Guatemala City. As for those who left the sect and spoke out against it, Uiel Goldman claimed that they were lying for the opportunity to receive some publicity, but the group couldn't shake the mounting accusations. 
On April 25, 2017, an Israeli court officially ruled that Lev Tahor was a cult due to the numerous claims of horrifying mistreatment of children. It ruled, based on the conduct of the sect towards minors, it's sufficient to call this group a dangerous cult that severely damages the physical and emotional well-being of the children of this community. Two months later, the apartment complex in Guatemala City that Lev Tahor rented out was raided by Israelis. Like they had done so many times before, Helbrons and his followers fled. This time, they traveled to nearby Mexico and were granted a six-month stay by the Mexican government. On July 7, 2017, 54-year-old Helbron's authoritative reign came to an abrupt and unexpected end. He was praying in a river in Union Juarez, Chiapas, a ritual in observance of the eve of Shabbat. But a strong current swept him downstream and hurtled him into a cluster of jagged rocks. He struck his skull against one of the sharp slabs and drowned. Lev Tahor expert Marcy Hamilton said, There is now a power vacuum. The attachment to a charismatic leader in a very isolated group that engages in illegal practices is so strong. Helbron's son, Nachman, inherited his father's leadership role. According to Helbron's daughter, Sarah Teller, that's when things took a turn for the worse. Nachman's guidelines for Lev Tahor were harsher than his father's, including severe dietary restrictions. Though it's unclear exactly what changes he was making, as his father already demanded that members not eat chicken, most vegetables, or milk that they didn't milk themselves, whatever Nachman was suggesting was somehow even more strict. Furthermore, Nachman insisted that Sarah's 13-year-old daughter marry the son of one of the cult's leaders. In stark contrast to the female member's customary behavior, Sarah stood up for her daughter. This defiance rocked the boat in ways she never could have predicted, ways that left an indelible mark on her family and their lives. For two years, Sarah was excommunicated from the community she had known since she was a baby. She was separated from her husband and children, and she was forced to do grunt work for the other families, like clean their toilets. Unable to bear these newly imposed hardships, Sarah decided to flee from Lev Tahor's compound. She managed to smuggle her two youngest daughters with her, taking them to the safety of Guatemala City. Determined to save the rest of her children as well, Sarah returned to Lev Tahor. But she was met with violence. Members reportedly attacked Sarah with their hands, with stones, and even with blades. At one point, gunshots shattered the windshield of her waiting getaway car. The young mother managed to escape with only one of her children. Sarah eventually relocated to the United States with the children she had managed to save. Then, in the early morning hours of December 8, 2018, 
Leb Dehor was once again embroiled in a scandal of headline-making proportions. Sarah's 14-year-old daughter and 12-year-old son were whisked away in an unidentified vehicle outside of their residence in Woodridge, New York. Thankfully, the siblings were recovered three weeks later in Mexico City. Three men were arrested on the spot, Nachman Helbrons, Meyer Rosner, and Jacob Rosner. A fourth man, Aaron Rosner, was arrested later in New York City. They were all charged with kidnapping, and they were all members of Lev Tahor. Even though her father was the founder of Lev Tahor, Sarah felt that her six children required protection from the group. She said, I am very imminently afraid from the cult and what the children's father and other cult members may do now that we are no longer under their power and manipulation. When Sarah received a threatening phone call from Lev Tahor's boss, she recorded it for authorities. The boss said, I am not afraid of you. I am not afraid of anyone. We planned to help every Jew. We planned to help your daughter. We planned to help your son. I will take them out from under your hands and will take them back to their father with God's help. In August of 2019, four more members were arrested for their involvement in the kidnapping. Soon after, Lev Tahor made the news again, this time for filing a request for political asylum with the government of Iran. It was an audacious move, given Iranian leaders and state-controlled media outlets' propensity for anti-Semitic propaganda. However, they outlined a sympathetic cause. The asylum document asked for cooperation and helped counter Zionist dominance in order to peacefully liberate the Holy Land and the Jewish nation. Rabbi Shlomo Helbrons regarded himself as a deity among men, someone who was closer to God than any of his followers could ever hope to be. In his mind, he was untouchable, immune to the law, even after serving time behind bars. But Helbrons wasn't untouchable and far from immortal. The freak accident in the river that took his life was not only a blow to the people of his community, but proved that Helbrons was not as powerful as his doctrine presented him to be. Today, the future of Lev Tahor is uncertain. Upon his death, Helbrons' fervent followers were essentially abandoned by their father figure. Under the new regime of his son Nachman, not even Helbron's own daughter was satisfied living in the only world she's ever known. Now that several of the cult's leaders have been charged with kidnapping, its current roster of approximately 230 members may dissipate. And with that, the community could very well crumble. As the old adage goes, cut off the head of the snake and the body will die.
Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back Tuesday with another episode. For more information on Lev Tahor, amongst the many sources we used, we found the New York Magazine article, The Vanishing, by Stephen J. Dubner, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Cults, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Cults on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of Cults was written by Andrea Vassillo, with writing assistance by Drew Cole, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. <laughs>